Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 11, chapters 81 through 90. That's what we'll be studying today. And typically we start this program with a brief meditation. Then we go into reading each individual chapter. I'll share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you might have. We're going to forego the meditation today because the chapters are pretty solid chapters and it'll take us a good amount of time to read each individual chapter and then talk about them in terms of teaching and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. So I'd like to just be sure that we have enough time to read each chapter and go in depth of the chapter content that you guys would like to explore. So if you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly, I'd like to welcome all of you. And if you've been joining us regularly, you've probably already downloaded the books and maybe read ahead so that you come to class having already read the chapters and maybe have some questions. But if you're joining us for the first time, I'd like to let you know the way to get these books is you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com. And from there, there's a link for free books. And you can download all the books from there. And there's even links that if you'd like to get printed copies on Amazon or something like that, you could get printed copies as well. And you're also welcome to take these files and go print them yourself if you'd like to. So I'd like to welcome all of you and just turn things over to the moderators and all of you students in order to have us guided through the reading so that there's somebody reading each chapter, then I'll be able to teach you anything that I'd like to highlight in that particular chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys have on each chapter. So I'll go ahead and turn things over to Rick and Miranda and all the rest of you. Okay, um, I will begin by reading chapter 81. Where heavenly beings take up lodging. Ananda, who is building a fortress at Italigama? Lord Sunita and Vasakara and Magadan ministers are building a fortress against the Vaijins. Ananda, just as if they had taken counsel with the 33 gods, Sunita and Vasakara are building a fortress of, at Pataligama. I have seen with my divine eye, my third eye, how thousands of heavenly beings were taking up lodging there. And in the parts where powerful heavenly uh, beings settled, they caused their minds of the most powerful royal officials to pick those sites for their dwellings. And where middle and lower ranking heavenly beings settled, so too they caused the minds of royal officials of corresponding grades to pick those sites for their dwellings. 
Ananda, as far as the Aryan or Indo-Iranian people, land extends. As far as its trade extends, this will be the chief city. Pataliputta, scattering its seeds far and wide, and Pataliputta will face three dangers from fire, from water, and from internal conflict. All right. Thank you, Rick. So here, the Buddha is just basically kind of explaining what is going to occur in the future in terms of this population of people that they are going to encounter these dangers of fire, water, and internal conflict. Internal conflict would be amongst the individuals uh, within the population. The Buddha is saying here that he has seen this with his divine eye or his third eye. This is what happens as a being awakens to enlightenment. Your third eye awakens. And this is where some of the special abilities come in. And one of the special abilities that the Buddha had is being able to see the future. And some people can see the past in terms of people's past lives and things like this. These special abilities that start coming into the mind, and there can be others, it's not encouraged to use these in any particular way in terms of impressing people or in terms of making money or things like this because an enlightened being isn't going to do that the third eye or the divine eye opens long before the mind actually gets to enlightenment so as this third eye is opening you can have this kind of rush or bombardment of lots of wisdom that's coming into the mind kind of you know, almost like somebody opened the floodgates and there can be all this wisdom that starts coming into the mind. And then as that kind of settles down, this usually happens in the jhanas where the third eye is opening. And then as that kind of settles down and you develop your practice and things get more and more stable, as you're moving through the stages of enlightenment, you can see some of these special abilities occurring. But as you'll see in the next book that we end up going into, volume 12, the Buddha discouraged the you know, kind of showing off or even the holding on to these special abilities. He talks about how he has experienced these special abilities, but he doesn't cling to them. He doesn't hold on to them. His real goal is liberation and getting to enlightenment. So you might see these special abilities coming into the mind as you're making your way through the jhanas, the first stage of enlightenment and so forth. And if you get hung up in terms of arrogance or pride or trying to make financial money with these special abilities, then you're not going to ever get to liberation because the mind is still having that conceit and there's still that central desire there. So as you experience these, if you experience them, just note what they are, know that they're there, know that this is definitely part of the path, that as the mind awakens and this third eye opens up, that these different special abilities can come into the mind but don't cling to them. Don't hold on to them. Just keep your mind focused on liberation and getting to enlightenment. So you need to be able to let go of these special abilities and not crave to have these special abilities and not use them for financial gain. This is what will help you to stay focused on the goal of getting to liberation. There's all different types of special abilities that you might experience. You know, Omniscience is a common one where you know the future before it actually happens for yourself or having psychic abilities where you know the future for other people. You can see the past lives. Some people can see past lives of other beings. 
You may see auras around people's body and around their head. There's different things like this that you can experience. You can be talking to somebody and you can know about their relatives. You can know about their dead relatives. Their dead relatives can be trying to communicate through you to this person. And all these different things are occurring. And what I suggest you do is just note how these special abilities are 100% truth. And as you're reading the Buddhist teachings and he's talking about some of these things that his mind is able to do, he's not doing it in a boastful way or an arrogant way. He's just kind of mentioning it as part of his conversation with Ananda. And other practitioners, occasionally he will be talking about it. But just note that it's the truth, that it really does occur. And then just don't cling to it, hold on to it, or try to create financial gain because of it. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? I'm not seeing anything on Zoom. Miranda, are you are you seeing anybody? Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, on Facebook, Amina has a question. She writes, is the third eye similar to what is known as having good instincts or intuition, sir? Perhaps, but the third eye is often much more than that. It's not just like kind of a hunch or something like this. It's like you can get to the point where your omniscience is so well developed that you know with 100% certainty of exactly what's going to occur. People can know when they're going to actually die. They can know when people around them are going to die. They can know certain events that are occurring or going to occur in the world. It's not just a hunch. It's not just kind of an intuition. It's really well-developed mind where you can absolutely know what's going to happen in the future. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, there are no other questions on Facebook this time. All right. So I guess we'll go to the next chapter since there's no more questions. Chapter 82. And Miranda, will you please read chapter 82 for us? Yes, sir. Thank you. Seven vows for achieving the status of ruler of the heavenly beings. Monks, in the past, when Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, was a human being, he was a Brahmin, excuse me, Brahmin youth named Maga. Therefore, he is called Maga. Monks, in the past, when Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, was a human being, he gave gifts in city after city. Therefore, he is called Purandata, the urban donor. Monks, in the past, when Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, was a human being, he gave gifts considerately. Therefore, he is called Saka. Monks, in the past, when Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, was a human being, he gave a rest house. Therefore, he is called Basava. Monks, Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, thinks of a thousand matters in a moment. Therefore, he is called Sahasaka, Sahasaka, thousand-eyed. Monks, Saka's wife is the Asura maiden named Suja. Therefore, he is called Sujampati, Suja's husband. Monks, Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, exercises supreme sovereignty and rulership over the Tavatimsa heavenly beings. Therefore, he is called ruler of the heavenly beings. Monks, in the past, when Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, was a human being, 
he adopted and undertook seven vows by the undertaking of which he achieved the status of Saka. What were the seven vows? One, as long as I live, may I support my parents. Two, as long as I live, may I respect the family elders. Three, as long as I live, may I speak gently. Four, as long as I live, may I not speak argumentatively. Five, as long as I live, may I reside at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in letting go, devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. Six, as long as I live, may I speak the truth. Seven, as long as I live, may I be free from anger, and if anger should arise in me, may I eliminate it or cut it off. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is giving us details about this being that is the ruler of the heavenly beings, Saka. And this first part is just giving us some background about Saka's life when Saka was a human being. But then the Buddha goes into explaining how Saka essentially achieved this status of being the ruler of the heavenly beings. And the same things that lead to rebirth in the heavenly realm also lead to enlightenment as well. So when you see chapters like this, not that you're aspiring to be the ruler of the heavenly beings or anything like this, but instead you can glean insight about your practice and things that you can be doing in your practice in order to get closer and closer to enlightenment. So the Buddha talks about this special relationship between children and their parents at different parts in his teachings, and he explains various aspects of this. And here the Buddha talks about you know supporting parents, and this is a really important thing, particularly during the lifetime of the Buddha, that you know people didn't have IRA accounts and 401k accounts and you know retirement plans and things like this. That as parents aged, the children started doing work and took care of the parents. So this was really important for their society and their culture to ensure that the children were taking care of the parents. So this is actually creating good benefit that if the parents take really good care of the children, help them grow, gain wisdom, support them, encourage them in improving their life, then as the children get older, they're more than pleased to take care of the parents because they understand that care and that love that came to them throughout their whole life. So this is the gamma flowing back to the parents as they get old and older. So nowadays, depending on what culture you're in, the relationship between children and parents can sometimes be strained. It's not the way it was during the lifetime of the Buddha, at least in not in all countries. Some countries like here in Thailand, they still practice the way that I just described, that the parents will take a vested interest in caring for the children, educating the children, helping them to gain wisdom, because the parents know that as they age and, they, and the children get older, those are the people that are going to be taking care of you. And you have a vested interest in making sure your children are very wise because when you're 60, 70, 80 years old and your children are taking care of you, you'd like them to make very wise decisions. So there's not really, you know, retirement homes here in Thailand. They do have some, but the Thai people don't really use them. It's actually the foreigners that end up using them the most. They bring their parents here and then have them placed in a retirement home. The Thai people actually spend time to take care of their parents. So when the children grow up, if you're getting married, your partner might move into the house 
the family house for a period of time. You save up money for a while. And then when you get enough money, you kind of move out and start your, your family. Or you might have started your family while you were inside the home with your parents. And then your parents help you to care for your children. And then at some point as the parents age, they kind of move in with the children in order for the children to take care of them or the children will move back in with the parents in order to take care of them. This is a very common thing. And depending on where you are with your relationship with your parents, you know, it may not be such that you're going to absolutely be able to support your parents. But at least if you can cultivate this true love that we talk about in volume one and learning how to practice true love and maybe even you might have to love from afar. But if you and or your parents are able to clear out your relationship or if you do have a healthy relationship, perhaps you can support them. And remember, supporting them doesn't necessarily mean, you know, giving them money all the time. You know, the Buddha talks about this in his teachings about how if we carried our mother on one shoulder and our father on the other shoulder, we massage them and bathe them and gave them all these riches and all this land that we still haven't done enough for our parents. So just giving our parents material possessions um, or rubbing their bodies isn't 100% what we need to be doing in order to take care of our parents. Instead, he talks about when our parents are lacking confidence, when they're lacking virtuous behavior, when they're lacking in generosity, and when they're lacking in wisdom, that then we can help them to cultivate those things. Confidence, virtuous behavior, or moral conduct, generosity, and wisdom. And this is ultimately what's gonna help them get to enlightenment. And there's humble ways to be able to do this. So that's one thing that's going to help you is if you return this gamma back to your parents. And the other thing that it does as well is depending on how you treat your parents is the way your children are going to treat you as they grow up. So you're teaching your child through your actions all the time. So if you badmouth your parents, if you have a turbulent relationship with your parents, if you're really aggressive with your parents, if you don't take care of your parents, your children are learning this from you. And this is going to strain your relationship. And it's very likely that your children will treat you and have that same type of relationship that you have with your parents. They'll have that same type of relationship with you. So by you, you know, kind of uh, practicing right intention, right speech, right action, by you practicing true love to whatever degree you can and having a wholesome relationship with your parents, this is educating your children the type of relationship to have and you're teaching them how to have a relationship with their grandparents so then that they learn how to have a relationship with you as well as you age. So keep that in mind as well. And then the Buddha talks here about respecting elders. This is very important to have respect for older people in our community because these older people obviously acquired a significant amount of wisdom in order to uh, live life and to exist in this world for as long as they have. And we might not agree with everything they say, but there are certain wisdoms that they have. And by us showing respect to elders, this allows us to cultivate wisdom and take care of them as well. And again, our children, our friends, our family, as we interact with the elders and we show respect, this teaches them how to interact with us as well. Whereas if we were disrespectful to elders, then your gamma is people are going to be disrespectful to you as you age. And then these are kind of part of right speech where 
the five factors of well-spoken speech and right speech on the Eightfold Path, the Buddha talks about not speaking harshly or speaking gently. And this is needed in order to get to enlightenment. And then also not being argumentative. Whereas if the mind is arguing, that means there's craving, desire, attachment in there. The mind wants to be right or it wants to prove a point or it wants this person to do something specific. So when you are decreasing and eliminating your craving, desire, attachment, you're also eliminating your anger, hatred, ill will. And this is all coming from the cultivation of wisdom or that elimination of ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So by eliminating any kind of arguing, this is going to help you have more healthy relationships, both personally and professionally. Whenever you see that the mind is interested in arguing, you should immediately work on restraining it and cutting off contact for a period of time so that you can regain composure of the mind. Being in an argument isn't going to help anything. And if other people are choosing to argue, you don't need to choose to argue back. The way that I think about it is it's like a rubber ball. If you were in a room, like a concrete room, and that person took a rubber ball and they threw it and it started bouncing around the room and it lost its energy and then you picked it up and then you threw the rubber ball, it's bouncing around the room and then they pick up the rubber ball and they bounce it. So if there's just arguing back and forth, this rubber ball is going to keep bouncing all around the room. But if somebody picks up a rubber ball and they throw it, and you just watch it bounce around the room and it rolls over into the corner and you choose not to pick it up, then that argument's going to die. It's going to be super impermanent because you're not feeding the argument. So it's very wise not to be argumentative in any relationships whatsoever. As an enlightened being, there's going to be no contentious relationships. There's going to be no negative relationships in terms of your your life. There might be other people who struggle having a relationship with you for one reason or another. But as an enlightened being, there's nobody that you can't have a peaceful and joyful relationship with. You're not arguing with anybody. You're not being argumentative with anybody. And this will help you to gradually get to the point where more and more people around you will learn that when they try to be argumentative with you, you're not argumentative back. And over a period of time, people will stop trying to argue with you because they know every time they raise their voice, every time they try to argue, you just walk away or you just remain quiet or you don't speak or whatever it is. And they learn over time that, you know, there's just no way that they're going to be interested in arguing with you. So you'll find that you'll have more peaceful relationships around you. This next one the Buddha talks about practicing generosity, is eliminating the stain of selfishness. This is needed in order to get to enlightenment. You need to practice giving and sharing where you're not expecting anything in return. This is going to help you eliminate craving, desire, attachment in the mind, and it's going to help you to cultivate the type of mind that is willing to give and share without any expectation of anything in return. An enlightened being is going to be generous with their time, effort, energy, and resources. 
they're still going to be sure that they have what they need for their own life and to sustain their life and for the people around them. But they're going to find ways to be able to practice generosity. In order to get to enlightenment, they would have needed to practice a lot of generosity to get there. And then as an enlightened being is actually enlightened, they're still going to be practicing generosity in the enlightened mental state. And as long as the mind has this stain of selfishness where it's not willing to give and share, or when it does share, it expects something in return. As long as this is there, there's still craving, desire, attachment. There's still this selfishness and the mind's not going to be able to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So practicing generosity on a continuous, ongoing basis is really important. And then as part of right speech, the Buddha teaches to tell the truth, be a truth speaker, one to be relied on, dependable, trustworthy, not a deceiver of the world. This helps you to become more influential. It helps your mind to become more peaceful and more calm. If you're telling some people one thing and you're telling another group of people another thing, if there's a lie, then you have to constantly figure out what you told one group and what you told another group. And your mind can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's overburdened trying to figure out what you told one group of people versus another group of people. So when you're always speaking the truth, you can just speak the truth. And speaking the truth, yes, it means not telling a deliberate lie, but it also means whatever you speak, be sure it is the truth. Sometimes when we're in a hurry or sometimes if there's arrogance and ego in the mind, we're trying to sound so intelligent, we might just be repeating something that somebody else told us. We didn't necessarily investigate it ourselves. So a truth speaker or one who's speaking the truth is not only not telling a deliberate lie, but they're also ensuring that as they speak, that they're only speaking the truth through having investigated or experienced whatever it is that they're actually speaking about. So that way people can trust your words. They know that if you're saying something, you've investigated it. You've experienced it yourself. It's not just something you saw on some conspiracy website on uh, the internet. It's not just something somebody told you at the water cooler. It's not just something that you saw in a magazine or somewhere. Instead, you've looked and you've investigated and you've examined and you know that this is the truth. And then once again, that really helps you not only be a truth speaker and one to be relied on and dependable, but it helps you to cultivate wisdom. Whereas if you hear things at the water cooler or you just see something on the internet and you don't investigate it in order for you to know the truth, you're just repeating information that isn't necessarily the truth. It's false information. So by you digging into things before you choose to repeat them, then that helps you to cultivate wisdom. And if you get the arrogance and the ego and the conceit out of the way, and you're not just speaking in order to look great in front of other people, then when you speak, you're speaking purposefully. You're speaking with benefit. You're not just speaking with idle chatter, but you're sharing things that are really meaningful and important and beneficial and purposeful. And you're speaking the truth at each time. And you're, it's coming from this wisdom that you cultivated through investigation and experience. And then this last one that the Buddha is talking about here, which is very wise and is needed, it sounds to get to be this being that is the ruler of heavenly beings, but it's also needed in order to get to enlightenment as well, which is anytime anger arises to cut it off and let it go. So with mindfulness or right mindfulness, you can be aware of any anger that's arising. 
and you can catch it as a bodily sensation, that would be ideal, or with the feelings in the mind, or the condition of the mind, or else it's going to feed this mental object. These are the four foundations of mindfulness. And what you would like to do is build your awareness of mind or mindfulness so well that you can observe the anger arising as a bodily sensation. Maybe there's heat or there's tickling, you know, numbness or whatever, or feeling in the stomach or this rising of heat in the body. When you start feeling those bodily sensations, it's important to observe them and then cut them off. Don't let those anger feelings come into the mind because once they come into the mind, it's now polluting the mind and now your intentions, your speech, and your actions are going to come from the anger. So you would like to ensure that you protect the mind. And the way that you protect the mind is you catch it as a bodily sensation and then cut it off and let it go there. And when you do that enough, eventually you'll get to the point where you've eliminated all the craving, desire, attachments, and anger will never arise in the mind. That's what the Buddha is saying here is, may I be free from anger. Because if you have anger arise in you and you eliminate it and cut it off and cut it off and cut it off, more and more you're training the mind to never allow it to actually arise anger in the mind. But of course, that's the gradual training, the gradual practice, which leads to gradual progress. And this is where you'll see the mind will move more and more into that enlightened state. And you won't spend time being argumentative and angry and hostile and bitter with people. You're not causing this harm through your intentions, your speech and your actions. You can have a peaceful life because you've cultivated your mind and developed it such that this anger isn't arising. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, on YouTube, Sajini asks, but if nothing is fixed or permanent, how can hunches work? How are beings still able to see the future? How can what work? Um, hunches. Oh, okay. So uh, this omniscience, I'm going to call it omniscience, not just a hunch or intuition, but omniscience, where the mind actually knows what is happening in the future. So it's still cause and effect or action and result. One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And those things are all happening in the world all the time. But as the mind awakens, some people can get to the point where they have omniscience and they know what is going to occur in the future. It's not that they're willing that to occur, but the mind is aware of a certain time frame or a certain point in time, and then they can know that that's going to occur. And then as you see those things occurring more and more, you know that you have this omniscience in the mind. And this is something that you can experience. So you can get to a point, I don't know, you may have already had this where you know somebody's going to call you before they call you. Or like the phone rings and you don't look at the caller ID, but you know who it is before you even pick up the phone. This is omniscience. Or you know that somebody's going to have a car accident and then three days from now they're going to have a car accident. Or you know something's going to happen in your life. You can know these points in time, but it's still cause and effect, cause and effect. It's not a fixed thing. Everybody's still making decisions towards whatever they're making decisions towards, but the mind is awake enough that it understands that fixed point in time that something is going to occur. Thank you, Mm -hmm. It looks like we have no more questions at this time, sir. I see Jan has her hand up. Oh, does she? Okay. I... 
Hmm. It didn't show up for me. Okay. Go ahead, Jan. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, Teacher David, thank you. Uh, I wonder if there are readings that um, would, where the Buddha would be advising people who have moved from the role of um, having parents to being the parent of adult children or um, have moved into the role of being the elder. I would find that helpful. Yeah, if you read enough of the books that I share, you'll come across those teachings. I don't recall exactly where they are and what particular books, but as we go through this group learning program and all these different books, books, there'll be these teachings where he's guiding all different levels of society. You know, he's guiding kings and business people and husbands and wives and children and elders and all these kind of things and kind of explaining how to best conduct ourselves and produce the most wise decisions which would lead to the most wholesome outcome so you'll see those but i i don't recall them off the top of my head thank you i'll investigate that um as a parent of adult children i think um there are many situations that arise that are very different from um, being the parent of an underage child that would be helpful yeah, the good news is, is if you know the Eightfold Path and you're practicing that really well, that's the real path, right? So if you're practicing right view through right concentration, which includes right intention, right speech, and right actions, whether it's with your adult children or your grandchildren or friends, business partner, neighbors, it's all the same thing. You're just choosing to you know, function through those good wholesome teachings and there you know you're not causing harm to others so no harm is going to come to you and you can function in all of these relationships with ease continuing to practice the full path if i could ask a specific question i'm in the process of drawing up um, end of life documents and uh, asked my son to become my executor and my attorney and my, um, I'm sorry, I don't remember what it's called, but um, when someone has to make end of life decisions mm -hmm. and he's very um, sensitive and I don't want to place a burden on him that will um, be onerous for him. So we had a discussion about this and he was very gracious and agreed to step into these roles. But I wanted to just make sure that I, as we have to negotiate these situations that um, we don't, I don't cause harm to him. Yeah, the best thing to do is to talk out what you're thinking without having any expectations and then giving them mm -hmm. time and space to think through what's been shared. So you can mm -hmm. say, you know, this is something that I'm drawing up. This is what I'm looking at. These are the different roles that I see. And I would be comfortable with you fulfilling this role if it's something that you feel like you would be comfortable to fulfill. I'm not interested in you making this decision today or even tomorrow but I would like to propose this to you, give you some time to think about it. If you say no, I'm completely fine with that and I completely understand. If you say yes, then I understand that as well and we can sit down and talk about you know, more of my intentions and more of what I'm thinking. 
And this is the way that you can kind of ensure that you share your thoughts and give them space to be able to think through those thoughts and let them know that if they come back with a no, that you're okay with that. Because sometimes we hear somebody sharing something and we're almost afraid to say no, particularly with a parent or someone who's in a position of authority. So it's important for you to help them understand that if they said no, that that nothing would change in your relationship, that the only way that you would be interested in them saying yes is if they were 100% comfortable with it. And then if they go away and think about it and they have questions and they're not quite sure how to make the decision, that they're welcome to follow up with you and talk about it so that it's kind of done over multiple conversations where sometimes if there's craving in the mind and there's expectations, we're expecting to have one conversation and get a yes or a no by the end of that conversation where when we understand what we're trying to do is come to a cohesive decision, then we can be comfortable to let everybody think through something as significant as this and give time and space for that and help them see that if the answer is no, that that you're completely fine with that and be sure they're convinced of that. Because sometimes someone might say, you know, if you say no, that's fine, you know, but really the meaning isn't necessarily there. So just be sure you take your time and help them understand and be convinced that if they say no, it's completely fine. Um, And if they say yes, then you would only be interested in them accepting that responsibility if they were 100% comfortable with it. Thank you, Teacher David. That's very much appreciated. Yes, you're welcome. I honestly do not see any more hands up today. I mean, this time, sir. Okay, we'll go to chapter 83. Um, Allie is volunteered to read chapter 83. All right, perfect. Thank you, Ray. Um, offering for the heavenly beings, the, perf- the perfectly enlightened one gave thanks thus to Sun La and Wasakara, the chief minister of Magadha. La, I'm sorry. In three verses after he had finished eating his meal, in whatever realm the wise man made his home, he should feed the virtuous leader of the holy life. Whatever heaven being there are who report this offering, they will pay him respect and honor to an honor for this. They tremble for him as a mother for her son, and he for whom heavenly being tremble is always happy. All right. Thank you, Ali. So this is pointing out generosity again. And the Buddha is saying, wherever there's somebody who's wise, you know, whatever realm they're in, then they would feed or they would make offerings to these virtuous leaders of the holy life teachers and practitioners who are sharing these teachings with others without any expectation of anything in return. These are people that we should take care of and ensure that we're making offerings because that's the way that these teachers are supported and these teachings come into the world. If we enjoy teachers who share teachings without any expectation of anything in return, not having a price 
for their teachings and their books and things like this. If we enjoy that in society, then we need to take the responsibility to support them. And this is going to help you in your practice to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but it's also going to help bring these teachings into the world in a way that you can learn them and other people can learn them because the more and more people that are practicing these teachings, it gets easier and easier for people to attain enlightenment because there's lots of role models around for people to be able to observe the teachings and how to actually practice them. So if you're living amongst 10, 20, 30 other enlightened beings, it would be relatively straightforward for you to get to enlightenment because you have lots of role models and lots of examples of how to actually get to enlightenment. But if we're living by ourselves and we don't have these beings around us or we're not interacting with a person who is enlightened and learning from a person who is enlightened, then it would be very difficult for us to get to enlightenment. So the Buddha is saying it's very wise for you to support people who are sharing these teachings that are explaining this holy life or this path to enlightenment. And then the Buddha is saying, okay, when these offerings are made, people will show respect and honor to this person who's making the offerings. That person is not only wise, but they're very well respected and honored because they're helping to support these teachings come into the world. And then the Buddha is saying that, you know, okay, you know, we should think about these people who are sharing these offerings like a mother and a son and think of them in the same way. This is where he says, they tremble for him as a mother for her son and he for whom heavenly beings tremble is always happy. So he's essentially saying, you know, kind of have respect and admiration for people who are making offerings in order to support these teachings coming into the world and being able to be accessible to a large population of people. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I don't see anything on Zoom at this time. How about you, Miranda? Uh, there are no questions at this time on YouTube or Facebook, sir. All right, so we'll go to chapter 84. The supreme honor and respect. Ananda, prepare me a bed between these twin sal trees with my head to its north. I am tired and want to lie down. Ananda, these south trees have burst forth into an abundance of untimely blossoms which fell upon the Tathagata's body, sprinkling it and covering it in homage or respect. Divine coral tree flowers fell from the sky. Divine sandalwood powder fell from the sky, sprinkling and covering the Tathagata's body in homage and respect. Divine music and song sound from the sky in homage to the Tathagata. Never before has the Tathagata been so honored, respected, appreciated, admired, and adored. And yet, Ananda, whatever male or female ordained practitioner, male or female household practitioner resides practicing the teachings properly and perfectly fulfills the way of the teachings, he or she honors the Tathagata has deep respect and appreciates him and pays him the supreme homage. Therefore, Ananda, we will reside practicing the teachings properly and perfectly fill the way of the teachings. This must be your goal and objective. 
All right, thank you, Rick. So here you can glean a few different things about this particular teaching. Some simple ones here is the Buddha is asking his student, his close student Ananda, to prepare him a bed, right? The students are going to take care of the teacher. And he asked for the bed to have his head facing north, right? So the Buddha would sleep with his head facing to the north, his feet to the south, and he was slept in what's called the lion's pose, which is on his right side with his legs stacked one on top of the other and the hand stacked on top of the leg. So he was essentially head to the north, feet to the south. His face in front of his body was facing west and his back would be facing to the east. So this is one way that he would lie down and he would be able to then sleep and that's how he would sleep and upon having done this this miracle essentially happens where these trees you know burst with this untimely blossoms there's this sprinkling of the blossoms on his body and these other things that are happening in terms of the music or sound playing this is a miracle that's occurring that's to show respect and show honor to the tathagata or to the buddha and then the Buddha uses this as an opportunity to teach his student, right? So this is a Buddha who doesn't have arrogance, who doesn't have ego, right? This amazing miracle occurs. You know, he wasn't like, wow, look at me. I'm so great, everybody. Look at my miracle or look at this miracle that has occurred. No, he uses it as an opportunity to teach his student and says, you know, okay, even though this miracle just occurred and there's this great honor and respect that's being afforded to me, He's using it as an opportunity to show the real way that he's encouraging his students to have respect if they're interested in showing respect. He's saying if a male or female ordained practitioner or household practitioner would like to respect him and show appreciation, then what they would do is they would practice the teachings properly. So by learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings, this is what the Buddha is saying. This is the way to truly respect me if you would like to respect me. He's not requiring somebody to respect him. He's not forcing anyone to respect him. But he's saying, okay, there's this great miracle that just occurred, but really the true way to respect me if you're interested in doing that is by practicing the teachings, right? That's the best way to honor a teacher is by learning, reflecting, and practicing their teachings taking those teachings seriously and practicing them, this ensures that you're getting to enlightenment. And as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, these teachings will propagate into the world more and more for others to get to enlightenment. So that's the best way to actually respect a teacher is to learn and practice their teachings. And he's using this as an opportunity to help his student Ananda to understand that. And he says, this should be your goal and objective is to essentially learn, reflect, and practice the teachings. What questions do you guys have on this chapter, 84? Miranda, I believe there's some questions on YouTube. Um, yes, thank you, sir. Um, YouTube, Pepico asks, may I ask if the memory of past life is stored where? In the consciousness or in karma? There's no way to store anything in gamma or karma. 
uh, karma or gamma isn't a mystical black cloud that follows you around. It's not a bank account that's sitting anywhere. It's just the cause and effect, the action and results. So when you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to other people, then other people treat you polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. This is your gamma, the results of your decisions. Or if you're impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful to people around you, then those people are going to be impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful to you too. This is your gamma. So there's no way to store that. That actually just occurs as a cause and effect or action and result. Not a punishment and reward, but just the results of your decisions. So the memories of past lives are in your own mind. So when there's death in one existence and then it produces another existence, there's craving and residual memories that move from one life to the next. So in the consciousness or in the mind, there's these residual memories. And as the mind awakens, meaning you're clearing out the pollution more and more, as this pollution of craving, anger, and ignorance is starting to diminish out of the mind, and then there's this brightness or this brilliance of the enlightened mind starting to shine through more and more, then a being who's more awake, a being who's enlightened is going to have focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memory. Memory of things that are happening in this life, but you can also have memories of past lives as well. It doesn't happen for everybody, but there's a certain number of people that will experience that, that they'll, as their mind is awakening, they'll start to be able to observe these past lives. And the only reason why I actually teach this is to help people to understand that when they're starting to have these observations of past lives, they're not going crazy. They don't need to be admitted into some mental hospital or anything like this, that it's completely normal to have these residual memories. And it's important at that time to keep the mind rooted in the present moment. Because as you start having memories of past lives, it's really easy for the mind to get somewhat deluded and actually think that you are those beings from these past lives. But if you keep your mind rooted in the present moment and you just realize that these are residual memories coming up from past lives that are in the consciousness, then you can stay stable and steady in this life and keep the mind peaceful and joyful as this is occurring. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Steve, um, are there any other questions for Randall on Facebook or YouTube? Uh, not at this time, sir. No, thank you. Okay, thank you, ma'am. Um, Donnie has a question. Uh, David has... Um, I haven't seen anything from the Buddha of why he slept in this position. You know, some things that I, I do know is that, you know, a Buddha does sleep with their head in the north. They do feel much more comfortable sleeping on their right side. And I don't know if this is because maybe it takes pressure off the heart or, or what it is. And also there's um, the thought that some people say the next Buddha is going to come from the West. And this is kind of the Buddha laying with his head to the north and looking to the West. And this is kind of indication. And there's been multiple indications throughout history that the new Buddha will arise from the West. So these are just some of the things that I'm aware of that are potentials. But I haven't seen those written down anywhere in any books or anything like that. Thank you so much, DJ. You're welcome. 
looks like we have no more questions on Zoom at this time, sir. All right. So we go to chapter 85. 85. Uh, Jan, would you please read chapter 85 for us? Yes, thank you, Rick. The path to the company of Brahma, the Brahma Viharas. What student is the path to the company of Brahma, God? Here a monk resides, cultivating one quarter of the mind, filled with loving kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to himself, he resides, filling the all-encompassing world with a mind filled with loving kindness, tremendous, distinguished, measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. When the liberation of mind by loving kindness is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there, none persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeter would make himself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, so too, when the liberation of mind by loving kindness is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there, none persists there. This is the path to the company of Brahma, God. A monk, residing, a monk resides, cultivating one quarter of a mind filled with compassion, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to himself. He resides, filling the all-encompassing world with a mind filled with compassion, tremendous, distinguished, measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. When the liberation of mind by compassion is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there, none persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeter would make himself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, so too, when the liberation of mind by compassion is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there, none persists there. This is the path to the company of Brahma, God. A monk resides cultivating one quarter with a mind filled with sympathetic joy, likewise the second, likewise the third, and likewise the fourth. So above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to himself, he resides filling the all-encompassing world with a mind filled with sympathetic joy, tremendous, distinguished, measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. When the liberation of mind by sympathetic joy is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there, none persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeter could make himself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, so too, when the liberation of mind by sympathetic joy is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there, none persists there. Again, a monk resides cultivating one quarter with a mind filled with equanimity, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to himself, he resides, filling the all-encompassing world with a mind filled with equanimity, tremendous, distinguished, measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. When the liberation of mind by equanimity is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there, none persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeter could make himself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, 
So too, when the liberation of mind by equanimity is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there, none persists there. This too is the path to the company of Brahma, God. All right, thank you, Jan. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was belief in multiple different gods, but there was this one God that was kind of like the God of gods that they referred to as Brahma, much like Muslims might refer to God as Allah, and people in the English-speaking community refer to him as God. And these are all the same being, just being referred to in different ways. So here the Buddha is referring to Brahma, and I've put in parentheses here God because that's what they thought of God. That's how they referred to God as Brahma. Just like I mentioned, like Muslims refer to God as Allah. It's the same being just being described in each individual culture and using different language. During this lifetime, it was Brahmin priests who were guiding people in order to learn and understand how to have a relationship with God. And they were you know, in this certain class of people, about 15% of society were considered to be Brahmin and they were born into this system, this caste system and the common people were taught to pay these people money and those people were going to pray because they were holy people and the commoner couldn't pray on their own. They needed to pay these other people to pray. And when the Buddha saw what was going on, of course, he realized that this isn't working because you can't pay somebody else to pray and then you go home and your life gets better and also at the same time he didn't teach to pray as a way to acquire any kind of peacefulness or material objects or anything like this that he understood it was cause and effect or action and result this natural law of gamma that was going to determine the results that we experience in our life we can't pray to brahma or allah or to god and ask for something and then that being is like a genie in a bottle and womb you know we get what we want this doesn't work you can tested and you probably have tested it many many times but people still believe that this is actually going to occur but it doesn't occur because this isn't the way things happen in the world the true reality of it is is that nothing happens in your life unless you make a decision there's some action that you have or some cause and it leads to some result or some effect but here as the brahmin were teaching and the buddha kind of cast this into his teachings is they were also teaching what was called the Brahma Viharas. And this is the word Vihara means like an abode or a dwelling. So what this is teaching is how do you get closer to God? That's essentially what this is teaching. And the Buddha didn't teach people to necessarily get close to God. He didn't make God as a central focus of his teachings. But he understood that these Brahma Viharas or these four healthy mental states are highly important for an enlightened being. An enlightened being needs to develop and cultivate and practice loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Without these four healthy mental states, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. And people during the lifetime of the Buddha were learning these and practicing these as a way of getting closer to God. And the Buddha explained it as a way of training the mind and eradicating pollution. So here in this chapter, in the explanation that I have, I'm sharing here to help you understand how 
these four mental states are actually helping you in what they're actually doing and what they actually are. So I teach this as part of the group learning program, and you can see this as part of the teachings here in this chapter that I explain what the Brahma Viharas are, each individual one of them, and even helping you understand the Pali word as well. And then I also explain what they antidote or what they remedy, because there's certain unwholesome qualities or pollutions in the mind that is hindering it from getting to enlightenment. And then there's these solutions or these remedies that are transforming the mind. So for example, loving kindness is the remedy for anger, hatred, ill will, hostility, aggression, harsh intention, speech, and actions. That's what's going to transform your anger, hatred, and ill will in this bitterness and hostility towards others. When you cultivate in the mind loving kindness and then you practice it in daily life, this is what's going to transform that. And then compassion, for example, is going to be able to remedy or antidote lack of care, indifference, worry, and anxiety. And then sympathetic joy is going to remedy or antidote envy or jealousy or pride. And then equanimity is going to antidote an overactive mind, restlessness, and worry. This is going to also help you to eliminate the measuring and comparing of beings and treating all beings equally. These solutions or remedies will make sense to you when you understand what these Brahma Viharas are. And the way that you can think of these is as another tool. So the Buddha is giving you all these tools in order to transform the mind so that you can invoke whatever tool you need at a given time. So the Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. It's helping you to get this foundational wisdom to understand this natural law of gamma and what we should be practicing on a daily basis. And then he gives you these other tools like the seven factors of enlightenment, the Brahma Viharas, the explaining the 10 fetters and all these other things that you can invoke at different times based on what you need. So if you understand what loving kindness is and you understand what it's antidoting, then whenever you see your mind becomes angered, hatred, having ill will, hostility, aggression, or harsh intention, speech, and actions, or any lesser versions of that, like being annoyed or frustrated or irritated, when you know that that's what's occurring in the mind, then you know with wisdom what you need to arise is loving kindness. So with mindfulness and awareness of mind, when you see the anger, hatred, ill will, hostility, aggression, harsh intention, speech, and action starting to arise in the mind, then you apply right effort to cut off and let go of those unwholesome qualities and now apply the right effort to arise the wholesome quality of loving kindness. And then where you see this lack of care, indifference, worry, and anxiety starting to arise in the mind, if you have developed right mindfulness and you're aware of these unwholesome aspects of the mind starting to arise, and you know that in your toolbox you have compassion in order to antidote that, then you start arising the compassion. And these are all the same way. Like when you see envy, jealousy, and pride starting to arise in the mind, then if you know what sympathetic joy is, you take the right effort to eliminate 
the envy, jealousy, and pride and arise with right effort, sympathetic joy. So this is why the Eightfold Path is the core central teaching where you're going to need to have right mindfulness and having awareness of mind and being aware of those bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. And when you're developing the Eightfold Path really well through your meditation and you understand and are practicing awareness of mind, then when you see these unwholesome qualities arising, then you know that they're arising because of craving desire attachment. So now you cut those off, applying right effort, and then you take the right effort to arise the antidote. And this is where you'll learn what those are. And I also teach this in volume one and some other places as well. But here, what you're seeing in the words of the Buddha is you're seeing that he absolutely taught these Brahmaviharas that you don't have to just take my word for it. In volume one, you know, I share these four healthy mental states. And now here you can see in the words of the Buddha that he's explaining to fully cultivate this in the mind, not just a quarter, not just a half, not just three quarters, but the entire mind needs to be enveloped and have this immeasurable or measureless loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, like overflowing and permeating the mind with these four healthy mental states. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Miranda, do you have anything on uh, Facebook or YouTube? Um, yes, sir. Um, since we are talking about the Brahma Baharas, the healthy mental states, um, Papiko asks, is Nibbana just a state of the mind? Is there any difference with Parinibbana? Why is it said that Parinibbana is a one-way ticket? Okay, so let's talk about these. So there's Nibbana or enlightenment, and then there's Paranibbana or final enlightenment. These are two separate things. What enlightenment is, is where you have in this life, you've trained the mind to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, the three poisons or three unwholesome roots, these drill down deeper into more detail called the 10 fetters. When you eliminate all 10 fetters from the mind, all 10 pollutions are eradicated from the mind. The mind is enlightened. So now this person is experiencing Nibbana or they're experiencing enlightenment. They'll experience a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy for the rest of their life. They will have cultivated these healthy mental states of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity in order to get to enlightenment. That's one aspect of it. But the enlightened mental state itself is just a permanent mental state that is peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy. And they will have various qualities in the mind, including loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, among other wholesome qualities. Now for the rest of their life, they're experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. They're still living life. They're still a human being. They're still making decisions. They're still going to work. They're still washing dishes. They're still driving their car. They're still spending time with their children. They're still you know, doing whatever it is that they would like to do in life, but they're just doing it with a completely stable, steady, content, peaceful, and joyful mind. They're no longer having their mind shaken up with discontentedness because they've eliminated the conditions that are causing this discontentedness. So whether they have five more years, they have 20 more years, they have 30 or 50 more years left in their life, they're going to experience that mental state all the way in through. Now, at the time of death, 
the physical body dies and the mind separates from the physical body. This is what we call paranibbana or final enlightenment. And the reason why we call it final enlightenment is because once a being attains enlightenment in this life, you can experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and consent mind with joy, where the mind will not be shaken up. You won't experience any mental pain whatsoever. But an enlightened being still living in this life, you can experience physical pain. It's not the same intensity. It's not the mental anguish. There's no mental pain as part of that physical pain but you'll still experience physical pain and you need that because if you are standing too close to a fire as an enlightened being, you need to have that physical sensation of the heat and a little bit of pain to tell the mind, hey, move away from the fire. So we need that. But the difference is the enlightened being is not going to become discontent or angry or frustrated as a result of that. There's not going to be the mental anguish. So an enlightened being can transcend any kind of mental anguish or mental pain in this life, but they're still going to experience a small degree of physical pain, but the mind just isn't going to relate to it the same way. So by the time this being that is enlightened dies and their body and their mind separate, we call it final enlightenment because at that point, the mind can no longer experience physical pain ever again. So that's something that you can't eliminate as long as there's existence. You can eliminate the mental anguish and the mental pain, but you can't eliminate that bit of physical pain. You'll hit your hand or your thumb with a hammer. As an unenlightened being, you might cuss, you might be upset, you might throw the hammer around, you might, you know, knock over, you know, some bricks or something and, you know, in your discontentedness and you just get really angry and frustrated. Okay, that's because there's mental anguish and there's also this physical pain as well. An enlightened being can still hit their thumb with a hammer. It's going to be painful, but they're going to be able to be calm and content and peaceful and joyful at that time because they know that that physical pain is impermanent. It's just a temporary thing. And going off with all this discontentedness and cussing and yelling and knocking over things isn't going to solve anything. So the enlightened being is going to experience the physical pain, but they're not going to experience this mental anguish as part of the physical pain. But by the time they get to death and the mind and body separates, now there's no more physical pain. Even that little bit of physical pain that you experience as an enlightened being when there's something happening with the physical body, you're not even going to experience that. So that's why we call it final enlightenment or paranibbana. We don't call we don't call it death. An enlightened being hasn't died. It's just that the physical body has died and the mind is separated. The Buddha calls this the breakup of the body, where the body and the mind separate. So we don't call it death because an enlightened being is no longer subject to death. They've acquired what the Buddha calls the deathless. Now this person, they've transcended sickness, aging, and death. They're no longer going to experience this ever again once the mind is enlightened. So there's breakup of the body and the mind. There's this you know, physical body that dies, but the experience of that breakup of the body and the mind is considered final enlightenment where now there's no more pain whatsoever, not even the physical pain. Yes, thank you, sir. This actually leads into 
couple of questions. I was going to wait until later, but I think they may be helpful to ask now. Um, Middleway asks, <clears throat> is there any difference among mind, consciousness, and mental state, and when there is death of the body, does the mind cease to exist, sir? Okay, so these are two separate questions. So mind, consciousness, and mental state, right? So mind and consciousness can be thought of as the same thing, or you can think of them differently. It's up to you. The, the mind, you can think of it as a container, right? Like a cardboard box. You can think of consciousness as the mind, or you can think of it as awareness of the mind. And then mental state is just the state of that mind. So peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy is a mental state. Or having loving kindness permeating the mind, this is a healthy mental state. So that's that part of the question. Can you mention the second part again, Miranda? Uh, yes, sir. Um, when there is death of the body, does the mind simply cease to exist, sir? Okay. So if a being is enlightened then the Buddha doesn't teach or declare what comes next for an enlightened being. For a being who is not enlightened, at the time of death, the body and the mind separate, and that particular mind isn't going to continue to exist. There's going to be a new mind. So the cravings and residual memories of this particular mind that is now going to need to experience rebirth, there's a completely new mind that the craving and desire and attachment, as well as the residual memories, moves into this new mind. And this old mind from this old being is going to cease to exist because it's impermanent. So there's two different scenarios. One is unenlightened being, and now they get to death, they're still craving in the mind, which craving is the fuel that causes rebirth. So now there's going to be rebirth because there's craving in the mind, there's going to be rebirth. So the cravings and residual memories of being A are now gonna get transferred into the mind of being B. But being B hasn't been born yet. It's just the consciousness that's there. And then at some point, when being B is going to take perhaps physical form, for example, if this mind is going to be reborn back into the human realm, now it takes physical form and there's a mind and a body that comes together. But these are two separate minds, two separate bodies. So it's more like the cycle of new existence rather than rebirth because there's nothing that's actually being reborn. And then for, like I mentioned, the enlightened being, when there's breakup of the body and someone gets to final enlightenment or parinibbana, there's no declared teaching of what's next after that. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. There are no more questions on YouTube and Facebook at this time, sir. I think Donnie has his right hand raised, though. Yeah, Donnie has his hand up. Thank you so much. Uh, David. So just to stick a clarification, um, so the Buddha actually mentioned that um, the different gods of different religion, whatever they call it, Allah, God, Supreme Being, um, they actually meant the same Brahma? Yes. Are they referring to the same Brahma? Yes, they're all pointing to the same being. They're just using different names to refer to them. And then each individual culture is sharing certain teachings about that being, like 
Some people call it the Christian God, the Muslim God, the Hindu God. But in reality, what this is, is they're all pointing to the same being, the supreme being of God, which in English we say is God. So when during the lifetime of the Buddha, when they talked about Brahma, they're talking about God. Or if you talk to a Muslim and they're talking about Allah, they're talking about God. Or if you talk to a Christian, they're going to say God if they're speaking in English. But in other languages, they will refer to God in different ways as a Christian practitioner. But they're all pointing to the exact same being. Those people might not necessarily agree with that. But what I'm sharing with you is they're all exactly the same being. They just don't necessarily understand that that's what it is. Thank you so much, teacher. You're welcome. Looks like there are no other questions at this time, sir. Mm-hmm. Let me give a little bit of analogy to help Donnie with his question too. Is, you know, this in English, we call it a, a mug, right? Or a cup. In another language, they call it something else. Or in another language, like Thai, they call it gao, right? They call it a, a, a gao. So all of these different languages are pointing to the same object and they're using different words, but they're pointing to the same object. It's the same thing with this being of God is all these different cultures and all these different languages. They're using different words, but they're all pointing to the same thing. So that's one of the ways to remember this. All right. So we'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 86. Okay. And Allie, would you please read chapter 86 for us? Thank you, Ray. The difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling. Mong, there are these four kinds of persons found existing in the world. What for? Here, monks, distant from sense desire, distant from unwholesome mental state, enter and reside in the first jhana, with, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement joy, and joy. He enjoys it, motivates towards it, and finds satisfaction in it. If he is firm in it, focus on it, often reside in it, and has not lost it, when he dies, he is reborn in the companionship with the heavenly being of Brahma, God's company. The lifespan of the heavenly beings of Brahma, God's company is an eon, indescribable period of time. The worldling remains there all his life. And when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he goes to hell, to the animal realm, or to the realm of afflicted spirit. But the perfectly enlightened one, one's disciple remained there all his life. And when he completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he attained final Nibbana, final enlightenment in that very same state of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling. That is when there 
its future destination and rebirth. Again, some person with the subsiding of thinking and pondering by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enter and reside in a second jhana with each without thinking and pondering based in concentration filled with excitement and joy. He enjoys it, motivates towards it and finds satisfaction in it. If he is firm in it, focus on it, often reside in it and have not lost it when he died, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly being of the streaming radiance. The lifespan of a heavenly being of streaming radiance is two eons. The whirling remains there all his life. And when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he goes to hell to the animal realm or to the realm of afflicted spirit. But the perfectly enlightened one disciples remain there all his life. And when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he attained final nibbana, final enlightenment in that way, in that very same state of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed whirling. That is when he is, when there is future destination and rebirth. And again, some person with the faking away of excitement remain in perkable world, unable to upset or excite, calm, serene, mindful, and clearly aware. He experienced in himself the joy of which the noble one say. Peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness. He enter the third jhana. He enjoy it, motivates towards it, and find satisfaction in it. If he is firm in it, focus on it, often reside in it, and has not lost it when he dies, he reborn in a companionship with the heavenly being of refulgent glory. The lifespan of the heavenly being of the refulgent glory is four eons. The worldly remains there all his life. And when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he goes to hell to the animal realm or to the realm of afflicted spirit. But the perfectly enlightened one's disciple remained there all his life. And when he completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he obtained final nibbana, final enlightenment in that very same state of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed whirling. That is when there is future destination and rebirth. Again, some person having given up pleasure and pain and with the faking away of former gladness and sadness, 
he enter and reside in the four jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. He enjoys it, motivates towards it, and finds satisfaction in it. If he is firm in it, focused on it, often reside in it, and has not lost it when he dies, he's, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly being of great fruit. The lifespan of the heavenly being of great fruit is 500 eons. The whirling remained there all his life. And when he have completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he goes to hell, to the animal realm, to the to the realm of afflicted spirit. But the perfectly enlightened one disciple remained there all his life. And when he have completed the lifespan of those heavenly beings, he attained final nibbana, final enlightenment in that very sense of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldly. That is when there is future destination and rebirth. These monk are the four kinds of person found existing in the world. All right. Thank you, Ali. So first of all, when the Buddha talks about these are the four types of people that are found existing in the world, He's not saying these are the only four types of people. He has other teachings where he talks about four kinds of people and things like this. So he's just kind of explaining these different scenarios of what can occur. And here he's talking about the noble disciple or the instructed noble disciple in the uninstructed worldling. The instructed noble disciple is someone who's learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha very closely. They're a noble disciple. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there were nobility that were born into being noble. And then there were this caste system where people who were born into what was considered a low family were thought to be kind of destined for a, a low life. And he was teaching people that it's not based on the family or how rich you are or the power and prestige that your family has in the community. It's about how you function in the world, about your wisdom, about your intentions, your speech and your actions, how you make decisions in the world. That's what decides whether you're noble or not. So any student that was studying closely with him and they were gaining instruction and learning and deeply understanding, he would refer to them as a noble disciple or an instructed noble disciple. And then someone who wasn't learning with him, he described them as an uninstructed worldling. Uninstructed meaning they weren't learning, worldling meaning because they were holding on to the world, you know, clothes and material possessions and wealth and fame or fortune, things like this. So they're uninstructed worldling because they're holding on to the world. So here he's explaining how an instructed noble disciple and an uninstructed worldling, they can both go to this heavenly realm. And he talks about these different types of heavenly realms. And then he says the difference between these two beings is the uninstructed worldling after heaven is going to be reborn down into one of the lower realms of hell, animal realm, or afflicted spirit. But he's saying here, his disciples, people who are instructed, they're going to be able to attain enlightenment from the heavenly realm and then no longer experience rebirth from there. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Miranda has her hand up. Yes, thank you, sir. Um, 
the question that came to mind when reading this, it talks about um, entering the first, second, or fourth jhanas. How would an uninstructed worldling or someone who is not learning and practicing these teachings, how would they even get into these jhanas, sir? I'm not sure if this is explaining that the uninstructed worldling is getting into these jhanas or he's just explaining the jhanas that his student would experience. Um, he doesn't necessarily, I don't think, explain how the uninstructed worldling is getting into these jhanas. I don't think it's he's teaching it that way, although I could be mistaken. I think he's just explaining what his student would experience in order to get to the heavenly realm. Okay, sir. So it really it's uninstructed worldlings can still have rebirth in heavenly realms. This may be a separate teaching about the jhanas within this discourse. Is that correct, sir? Well, I think what he's doing is he's explaining, okay, you know, here's this jhana that the instructed noble disciple is going to experience, and they're going to get into the heavenly realm. And then there's this uninstructed worldling who also gets into the heavenly realm, but not necessarily from fulfilling the jhanas. Yes. Okay. Thank you, sir. Yep. And then I'll follow that up, Miranda, is that uninstructed worldlings can actually start to experience some of these jhanas because the way that the mind works is that it can actually experience some of these jhanas without having like super deep instruction. You can actually learn things, not specifically the way the Buddha teaches it, but you can learn things like right intention, right speech, right action in lots of different ways. If you have certain mentors, you know, family or friends or business people around you, you can kind of learn not to steal, you know, not to kill, not to have sexual misconduct, not to lie, not to take substances that cause heedlessness, because these are, you know, the natural laws of existence. They're universally true. So these teachings make their way into, at the time of the Buddha, into things like Hinduism, right? Like we see these same kind of five precepts described in Christianity and Hinduism, even Muslim teachings tend to have these kind of things. So people can learn these kind of things and be awake to a certain degree about how to practice and how to have a certain life practice, but they're not deeply on this path in terms of the way that the Buddha teaches it because a Buddha's mind is so awake that they see this path so clearly and they can describe it so clearly. So it is possible for an uninstructed worldling to experience some of these jhanas. But remember, those jhanas, the mind can easily regress out of them. And they might actually move into these jhanas, not even necessarily knowing how that occurred. And then they can regress out of this. This is a common thing that I hear from people who haven't been studying the Buddhist teachings, but maybe have just been dabbling with meditation here or there. And they've maybe learned some things here or there. They will experience the jhanas and then their mind will regress and they don't understand why. They don't even know that they experience the jhanas. They just talk about this bliss and this clarity of mind and this mindfulness that they had. And it's like no other feeling they've ever had. They don't know what it was. They don't know how they attained it, and they don't know why their mind no longer experiences that. So because they're uninstructed, they don't understand how to get to that first, second, third, fourth stage of enlightenment where the mind won't regress. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm, you're welcome. And then on YouTube, Pepico has asked, uh, I'm not 
is Jesus Christ also able to be grouped into this being of Brahma? I wouldn't put Jesus Christ into the being of Brahma. Jesus Christ was a different being. You know, probably not wise to talk too much about Jesus Christ teachings here. We can definitely have a private conversation about that if you'd like to talk more about it. But Jesus Christ isn't God. So we can talk about that privately. You're welcome to send me a message if you like, and then we can discuss it there. Okay. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, there are no more questions at this time on YouTube and Facebook. Okay. Thank you, Miranda. Ali has a question. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, so, for the uninstructed whirling, whirling, they going into the heavenly realm because they do, um, they are generous and they have good virtue, right? Right. See, these are things that we can learn without being instructed by the Buddha. We're not. If someone's an uninstructed worldling, they're not getting deep instruction. They don't deeply know the path, but they might know to practice some generosity or what we would call the five precepts. They know those perhaps not as the five precepts, but they kind of know this wisdom that it leads to unwholesome things. So they choose to practice those type of things. So there's things like this that you can learn. And I usually give my grandmother as a perfect example of this. She's 99 years old. She's lived this very long, wonderful life. And, you know, she's never learned the Buddhist teachings. But if you ask her, like, Grandma, is it wise to kill? Is it wise to steal? Is it wise to have sexual misconduct? Is it wise to lie? Is it wise to take substances? You're like, no. You know, is it wise to talk harsh to people? No. You know, is it, would it be wise to speak with hate or loving kindness? You know, she's like, of course, with loving kindness, right? So she knows these teachings in one way or another, and she kind of assimilated them and picked them up, but without in this structured way that the Buddha provides them in this instruction. So by learning the teachings of the Buddha with such clarity and such conciseness and such preciseness, that's why you can actually make such progress. But because these are the natural laws of existence, if somebody figures out things like practicing generosity and having mindfulness and cultivating you know, certain qualities of mind and practicing certain things that we would call the precepts and so forth, they can figure these things out little by little. They're not going to have the depth and the clarity of what the Buddha taught as a full comprehensive path to enlightenment, but they might know like kind of little bits and pieces of it. But it's a Buddha who's going to put it all together fully. So these uninstructed worldlings can kind of figure some of these things out, especially if they have a lot of wise people around them or wholesome people around them. So this is why an uninstructed worldling can actually get to the heavenly realm where it's not believing the teachings that get you to the heavenly realm. It's by learning and having wisdom and practicing in such a way that you can get to the heavenly realm. An instructed noble disciple is going to have a better opportunity to do that because they have deep clarity about what the teachings are. An uninstructed worldling is going to have little bits and pieces of it here and there. They can both get to the heavenly realm, but also remember, that's not actually the goal. The real goal is to get to enlightenment. And that's what is going to really solve the problem that every living being is experiencing. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And I have a question is, um, 
guarding those heavenly those that are in the heavenly realms it's he says the uninstructed it will eventually um be reborn in a lower realm such as a hell realm or afflicted spirits or animal realm why is that why if somebody has gotten enough karma to to get themselves into this heavenly realm why would they drop all the way down to one of the lower realms because they don't have the full wisdom as an instructed noble disciple so an instructed noble disciple in that next rebirth in the heavenly realm they're going to have a lot more wisdom that's going to propel them in the heavenly realm to ultimately get to enlightenment versus an uninstructed worldling they're going to have some little bits and pieces of wisdom that was enough to get them to the heavenly realm but not enough to help them get to enlightenment in that next existence so they're going to extinguish all that wholesome gamma from their heavenly realm and then they're going to drop back down into the lower realms because they didn't have the full plethora of wisdom that they needed to make the final you know journey to enlightenment from that heavenly existence okay thank you david you're welcome uh, there are no more questions at this time all right so we'll move to chapter 87. i do have question a quick question i'm sorry um so i mean regarding the unwilling people i'm i'm just giving an example like they could be really generous but they are still like really enjoying a lot of sense pleasure that's why it caused them to go to the afflicted spirit going to a lower realm right once a being is reborn into the heavenly realm they're experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings so they're oftentimes very complacent in that realm but an instructed noble disciple who has cultivated a certain amount of wisdom in this human life and then is reborn into the heavenly realm they're going to still have that wisdom to propel them in the heavenly realm they're not going to be complacent like an uninstructed worldling so that uninstructed worldling in the heavenly realm is still going to have the fetters and yes, the central desire is one of those fetters that they would end up having. So that is going to be part of what leads to them being reborn into other realms outside of the heavenly realm, particularly what the Buddha is explaining here is the realm of hell, animal, or afflicted spirits. Oh, yeah, because the reason is I have seen, I mean, I know people that... Um, they are doing really well. They are very generous with other and all that. But at the same time, they are really um, enjoying a lot of sensual pleasure. So this would be like would be causing them to be in to be reborn into a lower realm. Potentially, it depends what the condition of the mind is at the time of death. This idea of a being judging us over the totality of our life and then deciding whether we go to a good place or a bad place, that's actually not what's happening. So somebody can be involved in central pleasures now, but as they age, they might slowly start letting those things go. So it really depends on the condition of their mind at death, not what they're doing at this exact moment. Oh, I got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
And with that said, it doesn't mean we should delay the letting go of sensual desire and think that on our deathbed, we're going to be able to let it go and have a better rebirth. Instead, it would be wise to let go of all that stuff now and get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that you can experience for the rest of your life. Thank you. You're welcome. So chapter 87. Okay, Donnie, will you please read chapter 87 for us? Thank you, Rick. Rebirth of one reflecting on impermanence. Marcus, there are these four kinds of persons found existing in the world. What four? Here, monks, distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. He contemplates whatever objects there related to form, feeling, perception, volitional formation, choices or decisions, and consciousness as impermanent, as discontentedness, as a disease, as a boil, as a dart, as misery, as an affliction, as alien, as disintegrating, as empty, as non-self. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heaven beings of the peer abodes. This is a rebirth not shared with worldlings. Again, some person with the subsiding of thinking and pondering by gaining inter-tranquility and openness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy. He contemplates whatever objects there relating to form, feeling perception, volitional formation, choices or decisions, and consciousness as impermanence, as discontentedness, as a disease, as a boil, as a dart, as misery, as an affliction, as alien, as disintegrating, as empty, as non-self. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of pure abodes. This is a rebirth not shared with worldlings. Third, with the fading away of excitement, remaining imperturbable, unable to be upset or excited, calm, serene, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself joy of which the noble ones say, peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness, he enters the third jhana. He contemplates whatever objects there related to form, feeling, perception, volitional formation, choices or decisions, and consciousness as impermanent, discontentedness, disease, boiled dark, misery, reflection, alien, discreeting, empty, as non-self. If the misery of the body after death is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of the pure abodes, this is a rebirth not shared with worldlings. For all, with having given up pleasure and pain, and with the fading away of former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. He contemplates whatever objects there related to form, feeling, perception, volitional formation, choices and decisions, and consciousness as impermanence, discontentedness, disease, oil, that mystery, affliction, alien, integrating, empty as non-self. With the 
breakup of the body after death is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of pure abodes. This is a rebirth not shared with worldlings. These monks are the four kinds of people found existing in the world. All right. Thank you, Dani. So when we think about the heavenly realm nowadays, we tend to think about the heavenly realm. It's just kind of one big realm. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, he was teaching different aspects of the heavenly realm, different kind of regions, so to speak, of the heavenly realm, that it was split up into various pieces. And what we saw in the previous chapter is the Buddha was explaining different aspects of the heavenly realm where instructed noble disciples can be reborn into and uninstructed worldlings can also be reborn into that particular aspect or that particular region of the heavenly realm. Here, he's talking about this aspect of the heavenly realm called the pure abodes. And here, this particular aspect or region of the heavenly realm, the Buddha is saying uninstructed worldlings can't actually be reborn into this particular part of the heavenly realm. And what he's explaining is that the instructed noble disciple is understanding these five aggregates. We studied these five aggregates in a different volume. These are the form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. This is what makes a living being a living being. And once you understand these five aggregates, you understand that they're all impermanent, that they, by clinging to them, that it leads to discontentedness. And you understand that these are not the self or they are non-self. These are the three universal truths. So a instructed noble disciple will understand these things. And this is what the Buddha is saying that, you know, they will contemplate when they're in the heavenly realm and they have this wisdom and they understand these three universal truths and they're in this particular region of the heavenly realm. And he's saying worldlings can't get to this part of the heavenly realm essentially because they lack the wisdom to be able to get to that aspect or that region of the heavenly realm. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Go ahead, Miranda. Yes, thank you, Rick. Um, on YouTube, Middleway asks, could you please give an example of the wording, whatever objects in each jhana, sir? Whatever objects what? whatever objects, um, where it says he contemplates whatever objects they're related to oh, feeling perception. I see. Okay, so once in the heavenly realm, whatever objects, meaning whatever tangible things or whatever aspects that are there in the heavenly realm, he can relate them or this instructed noble disciple can relate them to the five aggregates. So I don't know what objects are in the heavenly realm, but whatever are there, they're relating it to form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. From my understanding, the heavenly beings, they don't have physical form. They're actually formless beings, but they have all of these other aspects of these aggregates, right? But even still, in that heavenly realm, an instructed noble disciple understands that these objects are impermanent, they're going to lead to discontentedness if they're clung to, and that these things aren't the self. So I think that neither the middle way on YouTube or this other person that starts with a P, I'm sorry I can't pronounce your screen names, you guys haven't really been studying with me that long, you know, just kind of started in the last few weeks or last month or two. And if you end up 
taking the group learning program, which is on Sundays and Wednesdays, I share the three universal truths of impermanence, discontentedness, and non-self. And tomorrow, in tomorrow's class, even though we're on chapter 17, I'm going to be refreshing everyone's memory of the three universal truths and the four noble truths. So if you haven't learned those with me or in one of the classes on the replay that I've taught, it would be a really good time to join class tomorrow live so that you can learn about these three universal truths. So the Buddha is explaining here that a being who's an instructed noble disciple being reborn into the heavenly realm, when they're there, any objects that they encounter, they're going to be able to relate it to these five aggregates. And having done so, they will know that they're not permanent, meaning they're impermanent, that they, if clung to, are going to experience discontentedness and that they're not the self. And I can explain these three universal truths to you tomorrow, or you can watch the videos that I've taught on these topics in the past. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, there are no other questions on YouTube and Facebook right now, but I see that Allie has her hand raised. So it's got to hurt. Thank you, Marana. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, so if the heavenly being doesn't have a form, because I have heard that um, the heavenly being, the Deva, they are very beautiful. They are very beautiful. If they don't have body form, how can we? How can we know they are beautiful? Beings in the heavenly realm, they're able to see each other, and in certain situations, human beings can see heavenly beings as well. Particularly as the mind becomes more awake, just like we can see afflicted spirits, we can sometimes see beings in the hell realm as well. Um, these are all formless beings, hell, afflicted spirits, and heavenly realm. And some human beings are able to see them. So when you see that people are describing heavenly beings as being very beautiful, this is because certain human beings have been able to see them and then describe them. And now the rest of us have that understanding from the people that were able to see them. Um, I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, if they don't have form... What is it there to see? You know, I thought like when we see something, it has to have a physical form, right? Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't have a physical form, what is it that to be seen? Have you ever seen an apparition of like a, a ghost or an afflicted spirit, what we would call an afflicted spirit? Have you ever seen one of those? No. Okay. So these formless beings, they can appear as if they have form. They're formless, meaning there's no tangible thing that you can touch, but they can appear as if they have physical form, but they really don't. So we call them formless because if you reached out to touch them, you would just feel air. But to the eye, it looks like there's form there. There's physical form, but it's really not. Oh, okay. Got it. Okay. So I'm sorry. So which mean if they're formless, like they could be, they can go through the wall and stuff like that, right? Yes, that's right. Oh, okay. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. It looks like there are no more questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll go to chapter 88. And Jan, would you please read chapter 88 for us? Yes, thank you, Rick. The future destination of the instructed noble disciple 
filled with the Brahma Viharas versus the uninstructed worldlings. Monks, there are these four kinds of persons found existing in the world. What for? Here, monks, some person resides cultivating one quarter of a mind filled with loving kindness. Likewise, the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter. Thus above, below, across, and everywhere, and to all as to himself. He resides filling the entire world with a mind filled with loving kindness, tremendous, distinguished, measureless, without hostility, without ill will. He enjoys it, motivated towards it, and finds satisfaction in it. If he is firm in it, focused on it, often resides in it, and has not lost it when he dies, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of Brahma's, God's company. The lifespan of the heavenly beings of Brahma's company is an eon, indescribable period of time. This worldling remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he goes to hell, to the animal realm, or to the realm of afflicted spirits. But the perfectly enlightened one's disciples remain there all his life, and when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he attains final nibbana in that very same state of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling, that is, when there is a future destination and rebirth. Again, some person resides cultivating one quarter of a mind filled with compassion, Likewise, the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter, thus above, below, across, and everywhere, and to all as to himself, he resides filling the entire world with a mind filled with passion, tremendous, distinguished, measureless, without hostility, without ill will. He enjoys it, motivated towards it, and finds satisfaction in it. If he is firm in it, focused on it, often resides in it, and has not lost it when he dies, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of streaming radiance. The lifespan of the heavenly beings of streaming radiance is two eons. The worldling remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he goes to hell, to the animal realm, or to the realm of afflicted spirits. But the perfectly enlightened one's disciple remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he attains final nibbana in that very same state of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling, that is, when there is future destination and rebirth. Again, some person resides cultivating a quarter of a mind filled with sympathetic joy. Likewise, the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter. Thus above, below, across, and everywhere, and to all as to himself, he resides filling the entire world with a mind filled with sympathetic joy, tremendous, distinguished, measureless, without hostility, without ill will. He enjoys it, motivated towards it, and finds satisfaction in it. If he is firm in it, focused on it, often resides in it, and has not lost it when he dies, he is reborn in companionship 
with the heavenly beings of refulgent glory. The lifespan of the heavenly beings of refulgent glory is four eons. The worldling remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he goes to hell, to the animal realm, or to the realm of afflicted spirits. But the perfectly enlightened one's disciple remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he attains final nibbana in that very same state of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling, that is, when there is future destination and rebirth. Again, some person here resides cultivating one quarter of a mind filled with equanimity, likewise the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter, thus above, below, across, and everywhere, and to all as to himself, he resides filling the entire world with a mind filled with equanimity, tremendous, distinguished, measureless, without hostility, without ill will. He enjoys it, motivated towards it, and finds satisfaction in it. If he is firm in it, focused on it, often resides in it, and has not lost it when he dies, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of great fruit. The lifespan of the heavenly beings of great fruit is 500 eons. The worldling remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire life span of those heavenly beings, he goes to hell, to the animal realm, or to the realm of afflicted spirits. But the perfectly enlightened one's disciple remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire life span of those heavenly beings, he attains final nibbana in that very same state of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling, that is, when there is future destination and rebirth. These monks are the four kinds of persons found existing in the world. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here the Buddha is connecting the Brahma Viharas over to how that helps us in terms of future destination and rebirth and how his students are experiencing this heavenly realm and then can attain enlightenment from there. Again, always remember when you see that, that's not the goal. He's explaining it because it's a natural law of existence and helping his students to understand what is occurring. But his ultimate goal for all of his students is as they learn and practice to be able to attain enlightenment in this life if possible. But during the lifetime of a Buddha, we talk about how the heavenly realm is going to fill up because as beings are learning in the human realm, beings are going to have more and more of an opportunity to be reborn into the heavenly realm when a Buddha is teaching. And from there, they'll be able to actually attain enlightenment. So that's not the goal. You would like to be able to get to enlightenment in this life, because if you're going all the way through to this life without attaining enlightenment, that means you're still angry. You're still frustrated. You're still irritated. You're still annoyed. You still are experiencing discontentedness. And then one goes to the heavenly realm and ultimately experiences that realm and gets to enlightenment. But the goal would be to experience enlightenment in this life, enjoy the rest of this life with the enlightened mind, and then never experience any rebirth anywhere whatsoever. And there's other teachings that we've explored in this book and others where the Buddha 
talks about that and he encourages his students to be able to get to enlightenment in this life. He's not encouraging people to do what he's describing here. He's just explaining this is what will occur based on the results of learning and practicing the teachings. Specifically here, the Brahma Viharas, and he's explaining the rebirth and what occurs from that point forward. Any questions on this? I'm not seeing any at this time, sir. All right, so we'll go to chapter 89. Chapter 89. Rebirth of a person cultivating the Brahma Viharas and reflecting on impermanence. Monks, there are these four kinds of persons found existing in the world. What four? Here, monks, some person resides filling one quarter with a mind filled with loving kindness. Likewise, the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter. Thus above, below, across, and everywhere. And to all as to himself. He resides filling the entire world with a mind filled with loving kindness. Tremendous, distinguished measureless and without hostility without ill will he reflects on whatever objects there are related to form feeling perception volitional formations which are our choices and decisions and consciousness is impermanent as discontentedness as a disease as a boil as a dart as misery as an infliction as alien as disintegrating as empty is non-self. With the breakup of the body after death, he is born in companionship with the heavenly beings of the pure abodes. This is a rebirth not shared with worldlings. Rick, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here for a moment just out of timing. Um, because these paragraphs are actually exactly the same. The only thing that's different is the Brahma Vihara is changing. If you're would like to read that you're welcome to, but Essentially, it's exactly what Rick just read with compassion, with sympathetic joy, and then with equanimity right here. So that way we don't have to read the whole entire chapter, even though you're doing an excellent job there, Rick. <laughs> All right. What the Buddha is actually doing is he's now connecting the Brahma Viharas with reflecting on impermanence. So this is a being who is learning and practicing with him who's learned the Brahma-viharas and practicing those deeply, permeating the mind with the four Brahma-viharas, these four healthy mental states, and they understand impermanence. And this is wisdom that they would have cultivated. And he's saying, okay, these beings are going to experience this improved rebirth in this realm of heavenly beings, in this area called pure abodes. And he's saying this is not an opportunity for an uninstructed worldling. They wouldn't be able to get to this uh, rebirth because they're not understanding and practicing the four Brahma Viharas and understanding the universal truth of impermanence. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? I'm not seeing any at this time, sir. All right. So now we'll go to the last chapter for today, which is going to be repetitive, but let's go ahead and at least read the first. Is it repetitive? Um, it may be. So we can just kind of read the first section and then probably skip over the other ones. But let's see how it goes. Donnie, would you care to take that one? Thank you, Rick. A distinction between the instructed noble discipline, disciple with formless attainments 
and the uninstructed whirling monks. There are these three kinds of persons found existing in the world. What three? One, here monks with the complete overcoming of perceptions of form, with the passing away of perceptions of sensory impingement, with non-attention to perceptions of diversity, perceiving space is infinite, some person enters and resides in the base of the infinity of space. He enjoys it, motivated towards it, and finds satisfaction in it. If he's firm in it, focused on it, often resides in it, and has not lost it when he dies, he's reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of the base of the infinity of space. The lifespan of the heavenly beings of the base of the infinity of space is 20,000 eons. The whirling remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire lifespan of these heavenly beings, he goes to hell, the, to the animal realm, or to the realm of afflicted spirits. But the perfectly enlightened one's disciple remains there all his life. And when he has completed the entire lifespan of these heavenly beings, he attains final nirvana or final enlightenment in a very same state of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed whirling that is when there is future destination and rebirth. Do I continue? These are actually a bit different. Um... If you'd like to read them, you can go ahead, Donnie. I think, uh, yeah, we don't have that much more left. Okay. Number two. Again, by completely overcoming the base of the infinity of space, perceiving consciousness is infinite, someone here enters and resides in the base of the infinity of consciousness. He enjoys it, motivates towards it, and finds satisfaction in it. If he's firm in it, focus on it, often resides in it, and has not lost it when he dies, is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of the base of the infinity of consciousness. The lifespan of the heavenly beings of the base of the infinity of consciousness is 40,000 eons. The whirling remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he goes to hell, to the animal realm, or to the realm of afflicted spirits. But the perfectly enlightened one's disciple remains there all his life. And when he has completed the entire lifespan of the, those heavenly beings, he attains final nirvana or final enlightenment in a very same state of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed whirling. That is, when there is future destination and rebirth. Third, again, monks, by completely overcoming the base of the infinity of consciousness, perceiving there is nothing. Some person here enters and resides in the base of nothingness. He enjoys it, motivated towards it, and finds satisfaction in it. If he is firm in it, focused on it, often resides in it, and has not lost it when he dies, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of the base of nothingness. The lifespan of the heavenly beings of the base of nothingness is 60,000 eons. The whirling remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire lifespan of those heavenly beings, he goes to hell, to the animal realm, or to the realm of afflicted spirits. But the perfectly enlightened one's disciple remains there all his life, and when he has completed the entire lifespan of these heavenly beings, 
he attains final nibbana, final enlightenment in that very same state of existence. This is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling, that is, when there is future distinction and rebirth. These monks are the three kinds of persons found existing in the world. All right. Thank you, Dani. So in terms of attainments, what is largely taught is the four jhanas, which are four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. And then there's four stages of enlightenment. And the mind's actually enlightened when it gets to the fourth stage of arahant. But there's these other attainments that the Buddha teaches as well. And there's other parts in this book series where I describe those using the Buddhist teachings. You can see his words and then you can see the words that I share about these other attainments. Not everybody is going to necessarily experience these other attainments. So we don't really talk about them too much, but they're in the text. They're there so that if you're experiencing them, you can actually see them. And one of those attainments are being able to see your past lives, for example. Not everybody's going to experience that, but it is one of the attainments or one of the formless attainments. So here what the Buddha is explaining is that an instructed noble disciple or this deep student who's studying very closely, who has attained these formless attainments, this is what they're going to experience versus the uninstructed worldling. So very similar to the previous chapters that we were studying, but now just honing in on the formless attainments. Do you guys have any questions on this chapter? Miranda has her hand up. Yes, sir. Um, I have a question on YouTube that doesn't pertain to this chapter, but it is the end of class, um, and it might be one that's better suited for a personal discussion. Um, Papiko asks, Buddhist cosmology is one of the most difficult for me to share with friends because we cannot find Mountain Sumeru, even today, kindly enlighten me how to get to terms with it. Yeah, I don't suggest that people deeply study the cosmology that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha because our thoughts have really changed and evolved over time. And you don't really need to know the cosmology that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha in order to get to enlightenment. So what's really needed, and the Buddha points this out many times in his teachings, is the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, five precepts, the things like this. There's these core central teachings. So I don't suggest that you as an individual practitioner learn these cosmology. I don't suggest that you share it with other people. In fact, I don't suggest you share any of these teachings with other people unless they ask you for, for guidance. And then even then, since you're probably not, you know, a teacher, you might decide to refer them to somebody that you trust and that can actually help them because oftentimes we want to get in there and the ego's in there. You want to share what you know and show them what you know. And we think that we can help. We might have this craving to help. But in reality, if we're not really fully aware of these teachings, we can actually be doing more harm because we're sharing things with them that aren't 100% the truth. And you know, like what you're sharing here, like maybe you've been attempting to share the Buddhist cosmology where my guidance would be, don't even share that. Don't even learn it for yourself necessarily. So I would encourage you and everybody else that only share things with somebody when someone's asking you. And even then, 
only share a little bit of maybe what you actually feel you know, but more importantly, direct them to a teacher that you feel can really help them because the teacher is going to understand the whole totality of the teachings and be able to really help this person on the path. If you just give them a little bit of a smidget and they're like, okay, that's great, thank you, and then they go away, they're not actually getting into books, they're not getting into classes, they're not getting into personal guidance, they're not really developing their life practice in a way that's really going to produce enlightenment because they're just getting a little couple questions asked and answered here and there and it may not be a hundred percent of what they really need to learn so that would be my guidance on uh, what you're sharing here and what your question is thank you sir the question uh thank you rick uh, teacher David, can you just very briefly share what do you mean by cosmology so that I know that this is not something important in case I come across it? Sure. This is like all the different realms in terms of like, you know, what you need to learn in terms of the cosmology is hell, animal, afflicted, spirits, human realm, and heavenly realm. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, he broke up the heavenly realm into lots of different regions. He also broke up the hell realm into all these different aspects of the hell realm. They had certain thoughts about all these different gods, Saka, the ruler of the heavenly beings, all these different beings that are doing different things and all these different realms and all the different sub realms within a certain realm. So that's what I'm sharing, that it's not important for a practitioner today to understand that level of detail that they were talking about during the lifetime of the Buddha. If you understand hell, animal, afflicted spirits, human realm and heavenly realm, that's enough. And then if you just understand the qualities of the beings in those realms in terms of hell, animal and afflicted spirits, they can't attain enlightenment. They're experiencing pain. They also in the animal realm and these other realms, they also experience some pleasant feelings and neither painful nor pleasant. If you understand the human realm that we experience all three discontent feelings and we have the ability to attain enlightenment and it's the most ideal place to attain enlightenment. And if you understand the heavenly realm that those beings are experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings and they can attain enlightenment from there, but they're oftentimes complacent. This is about enough. There's some other things that we've talked about in these classes and in this book that go beyond what I just explained, but that's like the basics of these different realms or the cosmology that I'm sharing in terms of what you need in order to get to enlightenment. So all these other detailed aspects of what the Buddha taught, it's amazing to see the level of detail that he taught. But today, we don't need to understand that level of detail to actually get to enlightenment. It's the core central teachings of the path that's going to eliminate discontentedness. Whether you understand the subsets of the different heavenly realm and hell realm, that's not going to produce the elimination of discontentedness. If there's a craving to understand this and a craving to teach it, that's actually going to hinder somebody from getting to enlightenment. So you guys can let go of even needing to learn all this super detailed cosmology or the way that the Buddha describes the extensive detail of these various realms. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. 
Very good question, Donnie. All your questions, everybody's questions are great, but that that's a question that hasn't come up, you know, taking something that I said, you don't have to learn and then saying, well, what is that, that I don't have to learn? That's, that's really a wise question. Hey, it looks like we don't have any other questions at this time, sir. All right. So I will just thank you all for attending today's class and let you know that next week we're going to be in the next 10 chapters, which is going to be chapters 91 to 100. And we've got another, I think, five weeks, uh, four or five weeks in this book, volume 11. And then we're going to be starting volume 12, which is titled Lowly Arts. This is going to be a very interesting book for you guys. Uh, moving out of this one and into that one, you're going to be seeing some very different teachings uh, than you've seen before. So thank you all for attending class. And let me just remind you of our classes coming up is not only on Saturday are we going to be studying volume 11, chapters 91 through 100, but tomorrow we're going to be in the group learning program in volume 1, chapter 17. This is Eliminating Fears. I'm going to be reminding you guys and refreshing you, or if you've never attended before, teaching you for the first time, the three universal truths and the four noble truths. So this is where you're going to understand the problem of the discontent mind, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward to completely eliminating the discontent mind. Then I'm going to share with you some special content that is going to help you to understand how to eliminate fear in the mind. And depending on how much time we have in the class, I'm even going to open things up to any fears that you guys are currently having that you need my help with in order to understand how to eliminate. Because there's the general teaching of the Four Noble Truths and everything else that I'm going to teach you about how to eliminate discontentedness. But then there's this specialized way that you can eliminate fears from the mind. And once I teach that, then I'm going to open up to allow you guys to ask questions based on specific fears that you have so that you can apply what I taught in class to your specific challenges with certain fears that you may have. So we're going to be doing that tomorrow in our group learning program on Sunday. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together so that we come together, encourage, support, and motivate each other. You guys are welcome to come together and actually meditate with us on Wednesday at the same time, nine o'clock Thai time. So thank you all for joining. Thank you for reading. Thank you for your questions. Thank you to the moderators for all your support and hosting these classes. We'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.